0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David
1: Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
2: So welcome to episode 43 of Sleep Talk and hi Moira. Hi Dave. Hi everyone. We're joined this month by Dr. Simon Frankel. Welcome again, Simon. Good to be back.
1: Our our roving reporter, I call (laughs) you. It must be our third year. Of doing this. It is. Simon's so been is. on
2: actually a few more times. He's helped us out with a couple of other episodes, one on yes. narcolepsy early on in the piece as well. Yeah,
0: yep. always good having a chat. Yeah, it's great to have
1: you.
2: So this episode, we're going to catch up on some sleep research. And Simon, that's where you're going to help us out, give us the latest on things from San Antonio and another meeting in Bern that you've been travelling a lot lately. Yeah, it's been a lot of, lot of air miles in the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so we'll hear about some of the research and some of the tech. Anything else
1: going on for you in sleep, Moira? Just planning ahead for the, the meeting, our Australian ASA meet conference in uh, October in Sydney. Just a little plug for people to consider coming down under if they hadn't heard about that. We'll talk about that at the end of the session as well.
2: Yeah, and we're just in the midst at the moment of calling for abstracts, reviewing abstracts, well, the call for abstracts is finished, now reviewing the abstracts and the symposiums have been settled and it looks like a really good meeting.
1: I was going to talk about this as another episode, but my... Um, but a recent podcast recording with a bit of a hero of mine, Brett Kirk, talking about insomnia, nice and mindfulness. So, yeah, that's my highlight. But I'll um, we'll talk about that in another one. I'll put a link to that, but it's not up yet. What about you? What's the, what's happening in the sleep world for you?
2: Yeah, so there's just lots going on, as you know, you know, as the marketing sort of person for the Sleep Health Foundation. There's lots of media stuff about sleep. Yeah. The media's just got this whole appetite for I things know. about sleep. And really, it's like trying to ride this bucking bull in terms of just trying to make sure that there's sensible, good quality yes. information is what actually gets out into the media, yeah. rather than the yeah. crazy stuff.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's it's such a it's such a tension within me and within the Sleep Health Foundation about that about not wanting to be fear mongering, and because people just get all agitated and just it has a terrible effect on people's sleep. But wanting to give yeah good quality you know, research driven comments uh, and advice around sleep. It's a it's a difficult one, but I think we actually could have a whole episode on that as a topic.
2: Well I'm coming to your breakfast session at the meeting in October about running a public health campaign yeah, in good in sleep. Yeah. So yeah, that'll be a starting point. And maybe as a follow up from that we'll we'll do something about, yeah, sleep and media and yeah. messaging. Yeah. Great. So, the theme for this month's podcast is sleep research. And we're taking the opportunity that Simon's just come back from San Antonio with the latest in research after previously just being to Bern to hear about hypersomnia and narcolepsy.
0: So, Simon, how'd you go with all that travel? It didn't fare that well. So, uh, I think it was 10 time zones to the west for the Bern conference and uh, nine to the east for San Antonio. <sighs> Wow. Um, so the jet lag was was pretty horrendous. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think I might complain about this every year when I come back. So, um, <laughs> But, you know, for hard. me it actually gives a real insight into what some of our patients, particularly our shift workers, go through on a week-to-week, yeah. month-to-month basis because yes. it's – It's much more than just an issue of affecting your sleep-wake cycles. It's everything, being hungry at the wrong times and not just being not hungry but being nauseated at other times and the effects on cognition. Just, you know, sometimes just sort of sitting there in lectures being almost mentally impaired in terms of being able to concentrate and think properly. And, and our shift work patients go through this all the time. So I, th- I think it just shows that really that all of these circadian rhythm type disturbances are, are body-wide experiences. And so the, yeah, speaking to patients about it, we've got to be asking more than when you're waking and when you're asleep.
2: A couple of episodes ago, talking about when you eat, and that was a bit of a blind spot for us in our clinical history. You know, we don't ask patients, well, what time do you have breakfast and when do you eat lunch and what's your eating behaviour pattern? But, yeah, jet lag's really an example where that gets thrown out completely.
0: Yeah, well, I had a patient just uh, yesterday who's on steroid tablets for another condition who's going to be travelling to Europe and is taking it in the morning at the moment and wanted to know what she should be doing when she travels and yeah. sort of sitting there with sleep diaries trying to work it out and I said, look, just take it in the morning when you get there and it'll, it'll work out okay.
1: Yeah. But don't you think in the coming years there will be more precise, you, you guys will be guided better, I think, around that. I think think, with all the fantastic work that's been churned out in the, this chrono area. Yeah, the time, there's timing.
0: absolutely no doubt about that. I'll chat a bit later about some of the mm. circadian research that is really honing in on on the timing is extremely yes. important yes. relative to your absolutely. internal clock rather than the clock that's on the wall. So
2: now that you're back and you've had a chance to distill some of that,
0: those thoughts, now that the jet lag settled a bit, What were some of the key things from the conference? Yeah, so both of them, uh, particularly the burn conference, but uh, to a lesser extent, San Antonio had, or for me at least, a a hypersomnolence theme, focusing both on diagnostics and therapeutics. I guess from a, a narcolepsy type one point of view, so this is what we used to call narcolepsy with cataplexy. Until recently, there had not been uh, a commercially available test of the hypocretin levels from cerebrospinal fluid, which is really the only way to uh, definitively diagnose narcolepsy type one, where patients with that condition completely lack that that neurotransmitter. We rely on patient histories and multiple sleep latency tests. The Mayo Clinic in the U.S. has developed a, a commercially available assay now. So, for 800 U.S. dollars, you can send them a hypocretin or a patient's cerebrospinal fluid and they'll measure the levels for you. So I think it's a sort of quite a big step. We've always talked about it would be nice to have this available and almost got it up a few years ago in Australia, but now, yeah, it's available in the US. Can you see yourself doing that? I
1: was going to say, would you send, is that Australian dollars? <laughs> by I the think time it's US, you, so it's yeah, not the time too good you, at the
0: moment. No, no. Um, I've not done it before. I think there's, there's a, one patient every year or two where you just really want to know. I think, so it might be something that I would consider. Yeah, serendipitously, there was just someone today, exactly
2: that. Really? I'm thinking, that'd be helpful. Today was the day. You know, I thought it would have been quite helpful to try and sort out that clinical situation.
0: And the other, I guess, interesting thing from a diagnostics point of view is that uh, you might recall eight or nine years ago, there was a, with the pandemic flu, I can't remember one of the Scandinavian countries, there was an enormous spike in the number of children Uh, developing narcolepsy, and it turned out that it was due to them being vaccinated with a particular type of pandemic flu vaccine. And then Chinese groups were showing that they also had a spike in their patients developing narcolepsy, not due to vaccination, but actually due to flu infection. What's actually emerging, and Emmanuel Munoz spoke about this, was that uh, he reckons that almost all, if not all, of narcolepsy might actually be triggered by flu infection. And what they've (laughs) found is that there is a small part of the flu sequence that looks very similar to a hypocretin molecule and that your immune system is essentially just targeting its defences in the wrong direction and destroying the wrong thing. In this case, the cells producing hypocretin. So he reckons that you know possibly within five years or so, they might have a blood test that will be able to diagnose narcolepsy. Wow. I'm liking that and even more reason to get my flu vaccine. So the other interesting thing from a, a diagnostics point of view was the the non-narcolepsy type 1 hypersomnia, so what we currently call idiopathic hypersomnia, narcolepsy type 2, where at the moment we're using uh, MSLTs or multiple sleep latency tests to diagnose these patients in combination with a carefully taken history. But there are significant limitations both with the performance of the multiple sleep latency test, its accuracy in terms of diagnosing these patients and in our ability to be able to separate them clinically and with testing. So there's been quite a bit of talk um at both of the conferences really over a number of years about the, the problems with our current diagnostic criteria but the impression that I got was that the drum was starting to beat a bit harder in terms of well we know that there are problems with our our diagnostic modalities maybe we need to completely change the diagnostic criteria for these conditions, maybe lump them together, look at different diagnostic modalities other than a multiple sleep latency test or be doing things in a different way than what we're currently doing. So the the sense that I got, and this was sort of coming from multiple disparate people who, you know, well-respected in the area, is that there might soon be a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of how we look at hypersomnias that are not narcolepsy type 1 or not narcolepsy with cataplexy. So that'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years. Did you get a sense in what way that's going to shift? So I think uh, the feeling that I got is that the distinction between narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia um, might not be necessary, that we might be classifying people as either having narcolepsy type 1 or a non-narcolepsy type 1 hypersomnia diagnostic criteria for how we're able to diagnose patients with these conditions might extend to beyond more than just the multiple sleep latency test. that so We might be looking at doing extended types of sleep studies. So to measure people who are you know, just requiring lots of sleep rather than being able to fall asleep on command, which is what we're asking them to do in yeah. a multiple sleep latency test. So to try and capture some of those people who we know have got a disorder, but in whom our current flawed diagnostic criteria don't capture.
2: And i would not appreciated how much it really matters, that differentiation at the minute between narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia in the US. You know, In the US, you differentiate those. You're on the hypersomnia side of the fence, bad luck, no access to drugs. You're on the narcolepsy type 2 side of the fence, great access to drugs. Whereas thankfully in Australia, we don't suffer so much from that delineation problem and we can largely practice as if... Maybe they're similar and we can't differentiate them.
0: Yeah, there are a decent number of patients, though, who have got idiopathic hypersomnia because they're, they're long sleepers and they're very sleepy during the day, but they can't, in you know, inverted commas, perform for the right. sleep latency test. By formalising other ways of diagnosing these people, we'll be able to capture them and hopefully be able to access drugs for them, which we can't do in a subsidised way at the moment in Australia. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Is that what you mean when you say access to drugs? Do you mean... Subsidy, or you actually, literally, they're just not going to be able to be. Uh,
2: no, ma- mainly, mainly subsidy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, yes, there's the issues around modafinil, armadafinil ah, and subsidisation. Yeah. Yeah. But in the US, most of the drugs are so horribly expensive;
0: it's really access to any. So just moving on to drugs, I guess there's. Uh, I think the landscape's going to be changing from that point of view, at least in the US, uh, in the next six months. There'll be two new drugs, in all likelihood, uh, getting FDA approval for use in well narcolepsy, but Always co-op the narcolepsy type two and idiopathic hypersomnias. So uh, there's a drug called uh, Solriamfetol, which has been um, in clinical trials for a number of years now. Um, that works on dopamine and noradrenaline, which a lot of the other drugs that we're familiar with work on. Uh, that should be coming uh, available soon. And then there's. Uh, patolicent, which works on the histamine pathways, which is actually quite novel. None of the drugs that we have at the moment do that. Uh, that's available at the moment in Europe, uh, marketed as WakeX. So it's likely that both of those are going to be coming to market uh, very soon in the US. And the, the trade show certainly had a feeling that there was a, a place for them. Um, so that, that landscape's going to be changing.
2: Yeah, it'd be nice to have some new agents available because, you know, we've all got patients. We're currently available agents. We're just, yeah, it's not, not as good as we
0: want it to be. And my, my reading of the you know the, the clinical trials with this is that I, I don't think that either of these are going to be groundbreaking saviours, but they'll be helpful alternatives for patients with whom we're struggling, who you know, just may be targeting things slightly differently, might just push the right buttons and get them feeling you know, better. So outside of the hypersomnia and narcolepsy area, what, what else? There was some uh, interesting stuff on uh, insomnia. I went to a, uh, a lunchtime debate where I had people pitted against each other talking about um what was better, so cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia or brief behavioural therapy for insomnia? So just sort of providing ah, some behavioural interventions, yes. which there's pretty good published data that yeah, it can be effective. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, the way they had it stacked was the the speakers were were, were very unbalanced, so that the CBTI side was uh, was given by Michael Perlis, who's very strong <laughs> and the opinionated, the guru and, and, the and, guru, and, and, yeah. and um, has got very strong opinions yes. and uh, presents. And he'd be very a great nicely. debater. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he unfortunately he... went first, so within the first <laughs> slide, the, it was the the argument was over. <laughs> it was actually quite. It was interesting because what 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 he led with essentially was that even in the best you know clinical environments with the best patients, CBTI is going to work for seventy to eighty percent. So why would you reduce the dose of the treatment? Which is, you know, only not effective in everyone. Uh, you know, so already like reduce it down to behaviour alone. Yeah. You... but what it made me think about, and I'd be interested in your thoughts more, is that you know, patients wait to see me, and if all I'm going to do when they come and see me is say, "Look, you've got insomnia; you need to go and see yeah. a sleep psychologist," that's not months. a particularly good intervention. No, and it's it, not. you know, I'd, I'd like to think that as a sleep physician, I could do a bit more than that. So what I try and do is, is give them some sort of modified brief behavioural intervention some strategies, you know, more than just sleep hygiene, maybe some sleep stimulus control yeah, and a bit of sleep restriction yeah. but whether that, if that fails, whether when they then come and see you whether that poisons things even further it's just another thing that hasn't worked for their insomnia. What, what's yeah, your take?
1: My take is that it's probably worth trying anyway. Like I think that there's enough evidence to show that sleep physicians and GPs who, who are going to see people a lot quicker than I do, can start with those behavioural things. Because I think that with CBT, interesting, I'd love to know what Michael Perlis thinks, because I think that it's in, when, when we talk about CBTI. i I often think that it's really B-C-T-I, that the behavioural stuff does come first, even though I'd put more emphasis on cognitive. I'm, I'm, I think you would agree with that. Um, but I do think the first stuff you can do, the simplest stuff, the easiest stuff, within the 15-minute fir- with consults, for instance, are those behavioral things so if they do spectacularly fail and blow up, at least you've tried something that was evidence based and probably was going to, could in most cases be really good. But in some people, their, their anxiety is so high mm. and their neuroticism perhaps on the uh, they're just, just so worried about things, they're so connected to the problem, it's nothing's going to work anyway, necessarily. Even the drugs, even drugs, you know, they don't work for a lot of people when they do in others when they're just their arousal is lower. So, I think the behavioural strategies, but also along that line with behavioural strategies that are around bringing down arousal. And yeah, I don't know, I think it's a really important one, how to how to park these people when they're in between a, a sleep physician and a psychologist, et cetera. That's why, well, we'll talk later in terms of my pick of the month, like digital strategy, you know, online and all those sorts of things is going to have to be, we're going to access that a lot. We have to access that sort of stuff a lot more for that immediacy.
2: And that's been one of the questions from those digital CBTI sort of packages is, yeah, does it poison future Mm -hmm. treatment or do you reduce the efficacy of future treatment? But I'm with you, Simon, you know, I think, you know, we both train advanced trainees and not everyone wants to be an insomnia expert. They want to work in sleep. And so brief behavioural therapy is actually a practical thing that non-experts in the cognitive therapy can actually deliver, be that general practitioners, be that advanced trainees, be that sleep physicians with a predominant interest in sleep apnea, happen to see some insomnia patients. I think having a little bit of extra knowledge and be able to say to the patient, hey, this is what we're starting with, but actually we've got more tools. And so this isn't the whole of the package is sometimes a nice way to sort of at least let them know, okay, if you find this isn't working, that's
0: not You know everything we've got, and it's not that everything's failing. It's just this is where we're starting. Yeah, and I think you, I think as clinicians, we we are quite good at picking that patient, like you were saying, Moira, who does need that more, you know, more cognitive therapy woven through. Because it's not just giving them cognitive therapy on one particular day. It's it's often woven through the whole the whole experience and
1: and managing your expectations. Exactly correct and reassurance, and it's very hard. Isn't it? That's what I find it harder and harder sometimes in that just because of how much media attention, ironically, is on sleep, people, that I think their anxiety is getting, there's a lot more angst about sleep and, oh, I should be sleeping, and and that's just, it's really, that's hard to treat no matter what we try and whatever our modality is. It's a, it is a difficult thing at times to get through to people to say, you know what, if you can just step back, and stay up and not try to sleep. But it, it's a very hard message to sell when someone who's really, really anxious. In fact, it might even be a bit irresponsible to say, don't worry. You, know, you can't really say don't worry about it when they are extremely worried about it. Tell me more. Tell me more about well, the insomnia. Well, Michael won. So. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: but I guess um, moving on, it sort of touches on what you're saying about people, you know, monitoring and having expectations yeah. of sleep. One of the things that I think we all see a lot is people coming in with their fitbits and downloads and i haven't seen anyone who has deep sleep on a on a fitbit (laughs) there was there and a bit of a theme in a number of the talks that i went to was of you know wearable technology and how there really is a a gap in terms of our our knowledge of 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 what these devices are doing and what they're measuring and 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 the accuracy and the accuracy of you know is it measuring sleep properly and this is not about deep light sleep is it just is it measuring total sleep time properly and what about yes. if someone's sitting down during the day doing nothing, how's it all that recording? Yes. The problem being that any validation studies have been pretty small and for the commercially available devices like Fitbit, they, they don't allow their algorithms mm. to be published and no one's told when the algorithms actually change. They so can't even sort of compare devices. Mm. So there's a guy who, uh, who spoke from Oxford who's part of a, a not-for-profit um, collaboration called the UK Biobank, which is an interestingly funded consortium of researchers. Uh, they uh, diverse funding sources from government to the Cancer Society, to the Heart Foundation, the diabetes people, Everyone sort of chipping a bit of money in. And they've basically got half a million subjects in whom they've got complete genetic testing and and various amounts of urine tests and scans and blood tests on different cohorts of them. But from a sleep point of view, about 100,000 of them have worn actigraphy in a very basic device that they've made themselves. It costs a few hundred bucks per device and just a simple accelerometer, just measuring movement. And they've had some guy, I think if I remember correctly, some guy in Central Europe write the, the analysis program for it. And this device samples at 100 cycles per second, and they analyse it in five-second epochs. And apparently this code is open access. So anyone can get, it's all just, this is what it is, this is what we're measuring, this is how we measure it, so anyone can access it. And, in fact, anyone can access, if you're a bona fide researcher, for about $3,000, you can access this biobank. So all the data is just there for anyone to look at. So they got all this actigraphy stuff, but about 150 of them of these subjects wearing actigraphy also wore body cams for for a period of time. So that what they could do using a combination of you know manualized human stuff, but also computer learning is assessing different types of behavior. And they they are able to, you know, across these 150 subjects, define, you know, about 250 different types of behaviors, of which about a quarter of them were sedentary. And so now they're sort of putting that all into their into their algorithm and they've got pretty high accuracy, about 80% in terms of being able to pick you know just sitting in front of the tv versus sitting at work versus lying down versus being asleep so this is all very Fantastic. exciting that's yeah. cool big data crunch <laughs> the numbers cool tech you know it's got everything I, I really like that and also that it's just it's open access it's not behind closed yeah. doors yes. that you know we we're, we're being secretive about this and and really for the raw data you know being you know being analyzed at 100, 100 a second mm. it's just it's yeah. incredibly rich
1: yeah. And such a public health consortium as it's from all these different areas in within the public health domain.
0: Yeah, and that's I think that's, that's why it's so smart that they've not had to go cap in hand to one yes. body and say we need a lot of money to do this. Yeah. Various societies have got various interests yeah. and are willing to, to put some money in.
1: What else? Tell us more.
0: Uh, There's a bit of circadian stuff. So we sort of touched on that earlier with my jet lag woes. (laughs) Um, And I guess touching on what you you were mentioning before, the the plenary session was given by a circadian researcher who'd done sort of a whole lot of circadian research in flies. Looking at the blood-brain barrier, which is literally a physical barrier between your blood compartment and your, your central nervous system, showing that in flies at least, it's completely under circadian control so that in the biological night, this barrier is completely permeable and during the daytime, it's completely shut. And that's really important in terms of drug delivery. So, what they've got is actually a, a fly model of epilepsy and are able to give these flies phenytoin, which is an anti epileptic, and basically showing if they give it at certain times of biological day or night, it's either going to be effective or ineffective in terms of whether it can get through this barrier. There's absolutely in the future, you know, circadian research is much more now than just timing and Gen how we can shift and people, and yeah, people's clocks. Yeah, it's more it's, about the metabolic effects mm-hmm. and, and how it affects literally every single cell in our body. There are circadian medicine clinics. I think um, Phyllis Z's got one. She's in Chicago. So they actually, um, again this is not dealing with you know, delayed sleep phase. This is dealing with you know, how you know, if you've got problems with your thyroid you know, what time are you going to take your thyroid medication or how is your circadian rhythm impacting on that.
1: And do you think though? I mean, this is so exciting for you know sleep boffins going to the and, and circadian people going to these conferences. How long will it take to just get out into the other for for the oncologists and the uh, endocrinologists and the, to be to be under to getting this research uh, this knowledge around the timing? Do you think it's already out there? No,
2: but there's absolutely a demand for yes circadian medicine. Whether you do a circadian medicine clinic, because you know I worry that that just creates another silo. You go to a different person for your body clock stuff.
1: Wouldn't it be great that everyone Whereas knew this e- exactly stuff?
2: Exactly. Everyone working with, in healthcare with people had a un, working understanding of the circadian rhythm and how it applied to their particular mm. area of interest. You know, I remember years ago, those dreaded Friday afternoon clinics at Western Health, which at one stage was an obesity clinic. And we'd sit there at 5.30, just completely stuffed, but talking with an endocrinologist. We were dealing with obesity, sleep and endocrinological problems. And that was a good 15 years ago. It hasn't yet come together even in terms of, you know, how we pull that together as that's probably, you know, the circadian thing was the thing in common.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be, it'll be a hard sell. I think it's going to, I don't know who's going to be the conductor of the band.
2: So for advanced trainees in sleep medicine, you're looking for a niche, develop an expertise in circadian (laughs) medicine.
1: Absolutely. We'll get into the curriculum of just undergrad medics, don't you think? Or do you think as trainees... Oh no!
2: Absolutely, it should be in the curriculum for undergraduate medicine and undergraduate health professional degrees because, as we said, it goes across all disciplines and all body systems. So it shouldn't be confined to one particular craft group.
0: I also heard um, a nice talk just sort of getting back to more of the conventional circadian stuff. Some research that had been done in adolescents, who we all know, you know delayed body clocks late sleep-wake times, mm. just looking at the potential mechanisms as to why that is. Mm. So they, they brought a bunch of adolescents in during school holidays and just played around with the circadian systems to see what the potential causes for them developing these delayed sleep-wake phases actually were. And it was interesting, they showed that they're actually no more sensitive to light in the evening, so light caused just as much um, suppression of melatonin as, as you would expect it to do as it does in adults. But what they found was that the light in the morning had less of an effect in terms of advancing their times earlier. So it's not so much of a problem of shifting late, but an inability to move back in the other direction each day.
1: Oh, that's a great breakthrough.
0: Which is, but then I was thinking, well, does it actually change sort of what we do?
2: Yeah, I I think we're only scratching the surface of this. You know, Sean Kane's recent work just showing that huge inter-individual variability in the sensitivity to light. Just makes me so cautious about these group data. We said as a group, they weren't more sensitive at night, but more sensitive in the morning. Well, now I want to say, well, what's that look like as individual data points? Mm, yeah, Because exactly. there is right. going to be such a lot of variability. Thanks very much, Simon. Pleasure. We, we certainly look forward to... 12 months, hearing about what progress you've made with your personal experimentation <laughs> with circadian rhythm management. Yeah, it's not going to be good
0: because next year's on the east coast of the US. So yes. I've got to leave about a month earlier. We take a month off, don't you think? Yeah, take
1: it, great. Go
0: home, just go to Europe. So, Simon, what's your clinical tip of the month, the pearl that you gained while you were overseas? So, the pearl that I gained was something called shut eye latency. And this was sort of a bit of a buzzword that was in a number of the talks that I went to. So shut-eye latency is the time between when you actually get into bed and when you actually try to start initiating sleep. Because if you just think, if you sort of, as I sometimes do, ask things in a bit of a sloppy way about people's sleep scheduling at night, you might not get the full picture. What time do you go to bed? 9.30. How long does it take you to get to sleep? About 30 minutes. What time do you get up for the day? Five. That's great. You're getting enough sleep. What shut-eye latency will tell you, if you ask them, well, what do you do when you get into bed, well, you find out that they're watching three episodes of something on Netflix and then they're scanning through their social media and they're actually not trying to get to sleep until one. So by asking, well, what do you actually do when you get into bed, gives you a bit of an insight into, well, what's going on and you know how much sleep you're actually getting. So shut-eye latency.
1: Dave, what's your pick of the month?
2: So keeping on the circadian rhythm and delayed phase sort of theme, uh, there was a paper that got quite a lot of publicity recently about resetting the body clock in people with circadian phase delay. And it was a small number of people and the study was done uh, in Birmingham. But essentially the message that they were giving out was very simple strategies shifted people two hours earlier from around a a 2.30am go-to-sleep time to around a a 12.30am go-to-sleep time. You know, and so the media picked that up as, hey, it's pretty easy. If you're a late night type, these are the things you should just put in place and simple as pie in three weeks, you'll be two hours earlier. And so at face value, that's actually pretty good. But then it does raise the question about, well, what happens when you're outside a clinical trial and the structure of a clinical trial? Do people drift back to where they were before? Do they, have, do they maintain things? Do they stay there if they don't maintain things? So it, it did raise a few questions for me.
0: I think that's something you actually see in a lot of clinical trials where there's a distinction between efficacy, which is how things work in that idealised situation, then effectiveness, which is, well, what's going to actually happen in the real world? Yeah. And I think there's a difference between the two. Yeah. And one of the things I worry about from that paper, great paper, good, I'm certainly going to use that
2: protocol as a starting point for pretty straightforward, uncomplicated people. But I just don't want people, to, the clinicians to get the message and then tell patients, well, look, this is all you've got to do. You've got to phase delay. It's as simple as this. Follow these five instructions and you're all good. Thanks. See you later. Job Job's done. 'Cause we all see heaps of people with much more complex circadian rhythm issues than that. That's not gonna be enough. What about for you, Maura?
1: Well, I alluded to it earlier in our discussions. Just a paper I came across recently just researching something else. It's it's reasonably oh what was September last year from the JAMA psychiatry called the effect of digital CBTI on health, psychological Wellbeing And sleep related quality of life, a randomized clinical trial. And they're just that the the authorship is a star studded cast um, led by Colin Espy. And within there, the people like Jason Ong, Russell Foster, and and others, uh, other dignitaries in the sleep field. It's a very large scale trial of 1,700 people or so accessing CBTI you know, on, on digital platforms and showing that, it, you know, there's efficacy there and just, remi- just a timely reminder and we'll put a link to it uh, for us to all realise because the access to CBTI is the problem, probably not the efficacy, it's the access and, and we need to increase access to that. And so online programs are going to be something we need to really push or uh, promote or even make and make better, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're actually already pretty good, you know, those yeah. randomised control trials. Yeah. Showed that they work reasonably well. It's, yeah, then when you start to roll them out in the real world, who do we roll them out to? But absolutely, we need to get more accessible treatments for insomnia. Well,
1: they conclude that, you know, the results confirm that digital CBT for insomnia improves both daytime and nighttime aspects of insomnia and strengthening the existing recommendations of CBTI as the the treatment of choice or the gold standard. So yeah, it's, it's, they're both good and we just need to um, I'll just keep working at making them even better. What about you? You've so many things in the last month or yeah.
0: so. Too many to pick from. The one, I, <laughs> the one I've gone with is actually uh, quite a bit more sort of clinical focus for clinicians and looking at, I guess, sort of a paradigm change in terms of how we're treating patients with restless leg syndrome. Things that we're using medication-wise are changing and there's quite a lot of accumulating data that opioid-type medication is very effective for patients who've got restless legs that have been refractory to other more conventional types of therapy. But as sleep physicians, we don't have great experience with, you know, we don't treat patients with chronic pain syndrome. So with using these medications, and there was something I heard about in one of the talks called the opioid risk tool, which is just a, an open access 10 uh, item uh, questionnaire that'll allow you to work out really what, um, whether your patient who you're considering starting on this type of therapy is at risk of um, misuse type issues with it. The, the only caveat is that um, it, it's not been validated for restless legs, so it's not been validated in non-pain scenarios, yeah. but it just gives you some sort of tool to use to to assess patients for their risk.
2: So thanks very much, Simon, for the insights you've given us in this episode. Uh, great to be here again. Thanks, it's great. It's really good. So look out in upcoming episodes for uh, topics on sleep and alcohol, cannabinoids and sleep. And we will come back, Moira, to the should we sleep together or is the sleep divorce something that people (laughs) should be thinking about as it was termed in a (laughs) media article recently. So thanks a lot for listening. If you've got any suggestions for the podcast, email us at podcast at au.
1: So if you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.
2: Thanks a lot.